0: Comsday Live. I'm Graham Lynch. Welcome to the show. Today, we'll be speaking with Stephen Hall, who's partner, head of telecoms, at Oliver Wyman, the consulting firm. He'll be telling us all about a global telco consumer survey, which they recently conducted, and he'll share some of the insights from that survey with us. We'll also be talking to executive editor of Comsday, Rowan Pierce, about uh, an interesting new ground-to-air network under development from Pivotel. But first up, the chief editor of Comms Day, Simon Ducks. Welcome to the show, Simon. Hi there, Graham. Um, good that you're back with us because you haven't been on the show <laughs> recently for various reasons. Um, now, you had a great story in Comms Day this week about a, a, a new cable being built from Latin or from South America to New Zealand and
1: Australia and possibly to Antarctica. Fascinating stuff. Tell us all about it. Absolutely, Graham, and uh, congratulations. By the way, on issue six thousand four hundred, I notice uh, in the uh, when we did the story as well. So yes, we picked up on a. Uh a bank uh, presentation in Chile that was actually had the government and all of the agencies involved in the Humboldt uh, cable which we've written about a number of times. Uh, We know Remy Galasso's H2 cable is the uh, strategic partner uh, and they're in the planning phase but this was an interesting update on talking about what's happening with the funding and, uh, what's next for the cable? So, uh, what we picked up, uh, the company behind, uh, the, uh, cable is a government, uh, fund or infrastructure arm called Desarayo Pi. And uh, they gave an update suggesting that they're going to be doing an RFP for the cable in the coming months. And they're looking to have that wrapped up by the end of the year, which is quite interesting. Now, the current figure that they're looking at to build out this cable is about $394 million US dollars uh, with an annual OPEX of around $18 million US dollars. So uh, by the end of the year, they want to have a clear financial model. Uh, they want to get their uh, pre-sales sorted out. And the interesting thing that came out of this thing, uh, because we had the uh, telecommunications undersecretary speaking as well, there's a lot of push within the whole of Latin America to actually connect up uh, research organizations, both coming from the US and Europe with uh, the various cables, but then pushing it out over into Asia. And it's uh, quite fascinating. They gave a uh, a particular... um, statistics saying that in the case of Chile, for example, more than 50% of its exports go to the Asian continent, and yet all of its uh, network traffic to Oceania and to Asia goes through the Northern Hemisphere, usually via the U.S., And uh, they pointed out during the conference that a lot of the cables uh, in the Latin American market are pretty old now, you know, 15, 20 years. So uh, in the next 10 years, there's going to be a lot of churn in terms of uh, cable replacements and uh, proposals for new cables. And one of the things that came out uh, from the uh, telecom undersecretary Claudio Araya, he uh, suggested that the Humboldt cable could be extended onto Antarctica now we've already written about uh, the fact that Chile was looking at another one I think from Punta Arenas uh, in the south in Patagonia and uh, so this would be potentially a a second route they'll have to probably choose one of them to use and uh, in addition we also heard that uh, Argentina is planning uh, one themselves and of course we have the US proposal we wrote about that was uh, going via New Zealand as well so suddenly uh, the Antarctic uh, continent is going to be looking like a pretty fibered up place uh, if all of these are going to come to fruition. But what's really driving that is uh, the research organizations. There's going to be a little bit of uh, uh, defense involvement uh, from various countries as well. But it's mainly research, mainly about climate change, essentially. But uh, one stat which I thought was quite interesting, uh, which suggested that Humboldt will be able to capture just under 20% of the traffic between South America and Asia, and uh, the Chilean government re- thinks that this traffic's going to be growing at 28% per year over the next 25 years. So, you know, it, it is quite a uh, big imperative to actually make this happen now coming from government. Uh, they still need to nail their funding. They're talking to all the big uh, telecom operators uh, around the world. Uh, no doubt the likes of uh, Telstra have probably had uh, some conversations. We also know they've been talking to research organizations in Australia, Singapore, and New Zealand. So, Arnet uh, would no doubt be involved in that as well. So, uh, and one of the things that came in, uh, one of the other panelists, was talking from an organization, uh, academic network called Red Clara, which essentially is formed by 13 countries in Latin America. And uh, they suggested they generated. Uh, 4,520 terabytes of data in 2018. So, you know, you look at all of that together, you look at uh, Chile's observatories uh, uh, through uh, the astronomy side of things and Australia's leading role globally, then uh, it's, it seems like a lot of things are lining out for this cable to come to fruition.
0: Yeah, terrific stuff. And, and of course, it, it, it's, it adds another component to Australia's fast-growing sub-cable infrastructure. You know, we've, we've just had um, the Oman Australia cable um, landed um, in Oman and, and they'll be ready to go. Um, you've got Project Echo and, and uh, the Hawaii second cable in the north of Australia. And of course, the recently announced plans for Focus to build a submarine cable down the east coast of Australia. There's also some really um, fantastic stuff happening with our subsea infrastructure.
1: Very much so. And, uh, uh, you know, we've written quite extensively about so much uh, interest in uh, the Darwin market as the gateway to Southeast Asia through InLigo and uh, their plans and uh, the ones you've pointed out. So it is really starting to hot up. And uh, as you can see geopolitically, uh, a lot of these new and proposed routes are just avoiding uh, going through on the China side. And so that's going to continue to be a driver uh, for how these cables are invested. And of course, uh, not to forget, uh, we have the highest uh, uh, capacity cable that just came online uh, last week, I think, uh, with uh, Southern Cross Next. Absolutely correct, yes. Anyway, on that note, thanks very much for joining us today, Simon. Thanks again, Graham.
0: Well, I'm joined by Stephen Hall. He's the partner of communications, media and technology at Oliver Wyman. Very interesting background. He's um used to be the MD at Accenture. Uh, strategy before that at PwC and Booze. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Good morning, Graham.
2: Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you on Coms Day.
0: Now, we're talking to you today about a very interesting global telco consumer survey that Oliver Wyman conducted in a number of countries uh, earlier this year. And I was particularly interested in the Australian results. Um, a big sample, over 1,000 respondents, so a pretty decent-sized sample, found some very interesting and, and to my mind, contrarian uh, things about what, what um, consumers of Australian telco services are thinking. So let's, let's take a look at the results. And first up, in the fixed market, you found some very um, uh, encouraging findings for telcos in terms of the um, propensity and willingness to upgrade speeds. Tell us about it.
2: Yeah, thanks, Graham. I mean, I like a fairly large proportion of consumers in Australia that were surveyed do express a willingness to upgrade their broadband speed around 54% on average. And I think what's interesting is that those that have consumed higher speed tiers already have, you know, even a more greater desire, if you like, for for higher speeds as you get up into the the higher tiers. But I guess the good news for for telcos in Australia is that of those consumers that are, you know, interested in higher speeds, which is at higher 54% on average, Around 46% of consumers are also willing to pay more for the higher speeds and fixed broadband. So there's plenty more that we can do there in terms of serving that consumer need.
0: Okay, now you found some, um, a, a similar propensity for 5G. And of course, that's of great interest to mobile operators They're spending a fortune on installing 5G networks. But the, the willingness to invest in, in premium services and new handsets is a little untested at this stage. What did you find
2: on that front? So of the consumers that were surveyed in Australia, it's probably a slightly lower proportion than some of the international markets in terms of their willingness to pay extra for 5G subscriptions. Um, but still a significant proportion, around 34% of Australians that were surveyed are willing to pay more for 5G. And also around you know, 35% of those surveyed uh, uh, you know, are looking at willing—you know, willing to purchase a 5G-enabled mobile device within the next 12 months.
0: Okay, well, that, that's obviously very encouraging news, and, and particularly as the 5G networks are entering their maturity stage, you know, 75%-plus population coverage. So um, I'm sure the operators will be pleased to, to hear that. Now, um, I thought I also was very interested in your findings on video subscriptions. Now, the received wisdom everywhere I go is that the, the video-on-demand market is saturated. There's too many providers... Um, the costs of subscribing to everything is mounting and be, people are going to start thinking about how they can consolidate and economise. But your findings did not necessarily reflect, reflect that received wisdom, did they?
2: Well, I guess it's, there is quite a bit of fragmentation, obviously, in the video market and room to aggregate, aggregate and consolidate. But from a consumer perspective, the consumers that were surveyed, you know, a very large proportion, I obviously already have video subscriptions of some form, sort of 80%. But of the different sort of subscription-based services, what's interesting in video is that of those, uh, there's still a very hard, high proportion of people that are prepared to increase their subscriptions. Um, so somewhere around sort of 25% of people uh, are willing to increase their subscriptions in video more.
0: Yeah, so obviously if you are like to market, you're planning an entry into Australia. That's not a discouraging outcome, is it?
2: Well, I guess people uh, are getting used to the fragment the fragmentation and... Um, consuming you know video from many different sources to get the content they want of course it doesn't mean that uh from a commercial strategy perspective there's still room to aggregate and uh, you know, combine propositions in different ways to create value for consumers in that respect
0: yeah and that's obviously interesting for the aggregation services like copter subhub and so on um, now the, the other cohort we've 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 been writing about this particular cohort and talking about them on the podcast quite a bit, and that's gamers because they do have peculiar requirements and and their own needs. Um, What did you find with gamers? What what sorts of things are they saying in the survey?
2: Yeah, no, a couple things. So um, if you look at those with gaming subscriptions, uh, they are also interested in increasing their gaming subscriptions. Um, And I think what's interesting is that uh, of the segment that, have a high proportion of gaming subscriptions they have a greater willingness to pay for speed a greater willingness to pay for 5g for example when compared to something like someone who would be more just a video subscriber which i think is interesting so clearly a greater desire for performance and speed in the in the gaming segment
0: yeah okay now um the one thing that also jumped out at me because it did feel a little counterintuitive was that telcos are actually quite trusted by consumers. What are the implications for that in terms of how, how telcos can approach things such as bundling in the market?
2: Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a good question. I think over the years, the focus of the study uh, shifts in terms of where we're looking at some of the latest trends. And I think the one that's interesting this year is around, if you like, the convergence of uh, different industries and the boundaries of you know, financial services propositions, energy propositions and, and telco and and, you know, what, what it means to have a bundle in the future, right? Um, interestingly, um, you know, in Australia that, uh, you know, Australian consumers do trust uh, the telco, um, you know, and and, and to a fair high degree compared to international markets. It's sort of 27% of consumers, you know, trust the institution to protect their personal data and their privacy. Um, so I think it's interesting uh, that uh, in Australia we are well pre- 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 positioned to look at some of those sort of commercial propositions.
0: Now, this, of course, wasn't just an Australian survey. It was a global survey. So can you tell us about some of the other countries where the survey was conducted and and, and maybe some of the findings there that, that might be pertinent for Australian telcos?
2: Yeah, well, we conducted the survey over 10 different uh, markets and we've only finished actually processing five. This is sort of hot off the press. But what I found interesting in terms of the comparisons was, was firstly that desire for, for, for speed, whilst it was common across markets, it was particularly outstanding in Australia. I thought the other thing of interest was just around sort of converged propositions. Um, here in Australia, if we talk about brand convergence, which is basically fixed broadband and primary mobile subscription from the one country, that's fairly low at around sort of 40%. And I think uh, second to that, if you then start to look at additional services within the home um, that uh, if for example, if you look at the secondary mobile line with a different operator than the primary fixed forward brand and primary mobile, that's fairly high in Australia at 65% you know, relative to some of the other comparable markets. So I think it's a, a good flag that there's a potential to invest more in what we would call sort of base management functions and about ensuring that you're getting the right proposition to the customer so that the operator's, you know, able to service more of the home, uh, I think is, is a big opportunity here relative to other markets.
0: Okay, well, that, that's, that's terrific stuff. Thanks, Steve. And I, I think it's always important to actually ask people what they think we have, there's always a lot of, as I say, as I said before, a lot of received wisdom that flows around the industry. And quite often when you ask people what they actually want to do, it contradicts that received wisdom and this survey has certainly done that. So, thanks for joining us today, and uh, thank you for sharing the results of the survey with us.
2: A pleasure, Graham. Thank you for making the time.
0: Well, moving on, let's have a look at the week that was with the executive editor of Comms Day, Rowan Pearce. How are you, Rowan? I'm good. How are you, Graham? I'm good. I'm good. It's a rainy day in Sydney today. And, um, of course, there's an election tomorrow. And let's hope there's a nice rainbow for Australia there at the end of it all. Um, look, Let's have a look at the highlights of the week, or at least a couple of them. And the first one, um, which caught my eye, was uh, your revelation in conversation this week that Pivotel, who, who probably aren't as well-known as they ought to be, are planning a air-to-ground network to provide broadband to aircraft. Tell us all about it. Yeah,
3: so I, I thought this was quite an interesting one. So they've said they're looking at what could potentially be a 100-site network which would really deliver broadband um, to aircraft across the eastern states, so Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, and, and potentially down to South Australia as well. And the idea would be you, know, you provide uh, broadband to aircraft both for, I guess, passenger entertainment but also potentially to the crew to support flight operations. So it's quite interesting. They did reveal last year that they were going to work with a German company called Sky5 on um, direct air to ground um, as part of a proof of concept. And I guess Sky5 actually in Europe is involved in like a 35-country um, initiative working with Nokia. So the two companies have basically said they could start building this network as soon as 2023, although they have said that that's um, subject to access to spectrum. And I guess the context for these kind of comments from Pivotal and Sky5 is that the ACMA is actually looking at... Um, uh, uh, using parts of the two gigahertz band for mobile satellite services and, and narrowband MSS as well. So basically Pivotel and Sky5 have gone to the ACMA and said that, you know, you should support direct air to, air to ground um, in that band. It's a proven technology, whereas they've said some of the kind of like, you know, 5G satellite stuff is a bit more speculative in their words. Um, so they're really just kind of making a case that they, they want to get spectrum
0: in the two gigahertz band to support this network. Okay, um, now moving on. Um, one of the things that ComStay readers and listeners of this podcast will have observed over the past year or so is the, the big trend for carriers to spin off their tower networks, at the same time, often keeping residual shareholdings. The ACCC is looking at the fixed issue of to what degree does this residual shareholding constitute ongoing control? What percentage should we apply? To that. Now, there's an inquiry going on. There were submissions that were put in by all the various parties. And I guess what characterized them was that they all disagreed with each other. (laughs) Tell us more about it, Rowan.
3: Yeah. So it's an interesting one. As you said, like obviously the government passed legislation last year, which was kind of, you know, trying to address what they said was a potential loophole where, you know, you, you, you spin out your towers and put them in a new entity and then Potentially, that entity might not have the kind of existing um, facilities access obligations that they have now. Um, So they're they're trying to, you know, pin down this percentage where a carrier is considered to have enough influence on a tower code that it should be subject to those obligations. Um, That legislation has a default uh, 15% corporate control threshold, um, but it can be varied by the minister. And the legislation basically required the ACCC to look at this issue and, like, you know, make a call on... What should that threshold be? So, as you said, there's been kind of quite a spectrum of opinions. I mean, I guess, um, and it, it's quite interesting, Amplitel, for example, has argued that uh, you know it shouldn't be 15%, it should be uh, 30% at least, or, or possibly even 50%. Um, and it's kind of interesting because there was a slight difference in emphasis from Telstra, which also made a submission to this, uh, this ACCC inquiry. Australia Tower Network, which has the former Optus Towers, Said that it should be a lot higher than 15%, or potentially even no threshold. And you contrast that to TPG, which has basically said that you know, basically everyone should be subject to facilities access obligations. So it's kind of um, it's it's kind of interest interesting in the context too. Like some of the arguments that have been put. Um, I guess uh, that you know these telcos it might be a barrier if they are subject to these obligations. Might be a barrier to seeking additional partnerships or additional funding and that kind of thing. Um, so it could be disincentive to investment. I guess the other thing that um, ATN raised was this issue of you know they've warned it could be a rent-seeking incentive to actually for a telco to call in the regulator all the time, which could be again you know have a certain regulatory overhead for telcos.
0: all all interesting stuff and of course um uh just as we finish up this podcast um we 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 can't fail but mention that we have an election coming up tomorrow uh, potentially a change of government and of course next talking of access obligations next monday there's there's also an expectation that um the accc will release in special access undertaking variation which um could determine the regulatory regime for NBN over the next 10 years or more. Uh, so it's got, we've got some exciting times ahead of us and I suspect we know what we will be talking about on this podcast next week. Thank you for joining us, Ryan. Cheers. That's it for Conversate Live this week. See you next time.